a doctor in the house. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case for loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. All right, advanced medicine time, and it's global. We're going global today because Dr. Rashid Bittar, he just can't be contained by any one country. You just knew you had to go out there and tell everybody what you know, and they actually like it. Well, some of them really, really liked it a lot, at least in Jordan they did. Yeah, so you, you're you're in the, the Middle East, as, it, as it's known. Uh, also, uh, we have a picture up, uh, permission granted by Dr. Bittar, Buried it well, not buried in the Dead Sea mud, but covered in it. And uh, what a great shot! You've never you've never looked more tan in your life. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, was, and, it was an incredible experience, and uh, I'll tell everybody out there right now that that was 24 hours ago, and I am detoxing right now. Yeah, it, it's I such a minerally it. rich brine that you go in, you can't sink in it. When I went to the Dead Sea years ago, I covered in mud, and you could sit down and read a newspaper, and you're floating so high, the newspaper won't even get wet. I don't know that you got any of it in your eyes. Did you get it in your eyes? Oh, it stings like crazy. Oh my God. Yeah, it was yeah. painful. Yeah. I was doing some of my breathing exercises, so you know, bring the hands up and over your head, and you stretch out. Right. And start dripping on my head, and drip down between my sunglasses and my forehead into my eyes, and I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. I didn't know how I was going to get back to the edge because I was probably about 200 feet out and because um, I couldn't see anything. At a certain point, I just right. started walking, but the eyes were burning so bad. But anyway, it cleared Oh, up. man. Well, yeah, I, I can commiserate with you on that. But it's been many years uh, since that time. But just encouraging to me that you're able to go around the world. Of course, we reach all over the world with the radio show each and every week. We know that. But sometimes, you know, being it like when we do our advanced medicine seminars together, bringing people together, interacting with them and human to human, it just changes the equation. They really get to see who you are and what you're about. Well, I'll tell you, Robert, the most um, amazing thing that's happened for me, and there's been a lot of amazing things that I've already shared with you in private uh, before we went on the air here, but the most amazing thing was just in the last two hours, and I sent you that picture yes. um, of the church where Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is where I'm at right now, and right across the street, the picture of the mosque. And how many Christians or Muslims in the world do you think know that there's a church where Jesus is born with a mosque across the street? Literally, and I'm not exaggerating, it would be about a... 25 to 30 second walk and you can pick up a rock and throw it from one building to the other and hit it. Mm. It's that close. It's amazing. And and, and, and probably yet, a synagogue or two as well around there. <laughs> I'm sorry? Probably a synagogue or two around there as well. Probably so. I didn't see any synagogues there, but of course it's, it's nighttime too, but it's you know all lit up. I didn't see anything um, that indicated there was a synagogue in that area, but I'm sure there is. Uh, but the point is that how many Wars, you know, based upon that seventh toxicity that I talk about in my book, the spiritual toxicity. Right. How many wars have been fought between the monotheistic religions, between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam? How many people have died mm-hmm. over the centuries o- over this very issue? And yet, here is the birthplace of Christ and, and a mosque right across the street from it. And as you said, 
very appropriately a synagogue, probably within a block or two, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. You know, the thing is, and I've told this story before, maybe to you as well. I mean, my mother was born in Palestine, what was in Palestine, now Israel. And uh, when she was growing up, she said the you know the Arabs and the Jews and and the Christian I mean everybody worked and lived alongside one another. There was very little discord as, in her memory until uh, you know the British got involved. Then they declared the statehood, and then everybody else from outside there was messing with that area to foment so much hatred and so much distrust. And every time you do that, you disallow the people to work things out on a local level because when you have to com- do commerce with somebody locally. It's not good business to be blowing them up. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got all the influx stuff, you know, after World War II, what had happened mm-hmm. to the Jewish nation. So many people had been just, you know, families ripped apart, people, you know, having been displaced from their homes. And so they had, when they came somewhere else, um, right. and when they came to um, Israel and uh, when they came to settle, it caused a lot of um, there, there was a lot of um, pain. Yes, pain sometimes transcends into or transforms into distrust, and that right. distrust then fuels, which is a normal phenomenon for any any um, anybody who's gone through or any people that have gone through that type of atrocity. Um, and you see what's happened with the Palestinians, and you know it's very interesting. I had no idea that, for example, if a if a Saudi comes into Israel. Uh, they'll be arrested because when they come back through the border through Jordan, uh, their passports are tracked and they will be arrested. And I didn't know that if you have a Israeli stamp on your passport, you certain Arab-speaking countries can't you can't enter. And they won't, I have a yeah, Saudi, they won't let you in. That's uh, true. Visa, which is good for 15 years, and um, I was told repetitively make sure they don't stamp your passport, which apparently they don't now anyway. They give you yeah, no, they're pretty uh, aware of it, I think. But I, I yeah. think to, to so the but point... that's, this is fueling more more animosity, and right. instead of you know, the, so when you're standing in a when you're standing in a road and you look to your left and you see a church and you look to your right and you see a mosque and then you and, and th- this isn't just a church or a mosque, it's you know it's the birthplace of Christ and it's a uh, and it's a mosque right across the street and as you said, I'm sure within a block or two of the synagogue. My, I'm I'm so looking forward to going to Jerusalem. I, I told. Um, I told everybody, listen, I'm going to be spending at least a solid full day in Jerusalem, and I'm going to be praying. And they said, it won't do you any good. You need a lot more than one day of prayer in Jerusalem. And I probably would have to agree with them. It's true. It's true. But I think, you know, what I like to bring out is that uh, how people become political pawns, the so-called little people, the people who aren't in control, aren't the bankers, aren't the war makers, and they become pawns and they foment hatred. Uh, you know, in a, in a, you have to dehumanize people to be able to kill them and blow them up and things like that. And, you know, whether it be our own country in America where we look to the government and we'll criticize it if we believe it's doing wrong, uh, there's certainly those even in Israel that look to their own government. And, and, and but there's so much, there's such, so much, such complicated, uh, messes that are done by interfering in it. And I, again, I, I, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but I think if you let people figure it out locally and don't use them as pawns, they're going to figure out it's in everybody's best interest to find a way to get along, even if they don't like each other, to tolerate, do business. And that's at one point in history, at least my mother, when she grew up there, she said it was like that. Yeah, and I think it's, um, it's you know, if you look at the history of Jerusalem for as an example, I didn't even realize this, but, uh, and I know that we're not, this is not... Uh, we're not talking about religion here, but or spirituality. It's a medical show, but we, I think this. I think it's very relevant. But when you look at the history of Jerusalem, I didn't know this, but there have been 27 wars 
that have been fought over Jerusalem. And uh, some of the histories, in fact, I think, Robert, off the air, I once told you there's a great movie called, um, I have to remember what the name of the movie is, it's escaping me now, uh, but but the, during the time of King Richard, when he controlled the uh, city of Jerusalem and how no, there was no tolerance for anyone who abused another because of their religion. All religions were treated equally, whether you were Christian, Muslim, Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Azan prayer was given uh, in Jerusalem, even though it was under Christian control. It was completely tolerated, but how there was one of the components within the uh, Christian sector that was very uh, militant, I guess would be the right word, sure. and how they had attacked some caravans and uh, when King, I think it was King Richard, when King Richard died, he had a very close relationship with Salahuddin and um, Salahuddin then after the after the king died uh, gave an opportunity for the new controlling Christian sector that was very militant and had attacked multiple caravans, uh, gave them a chance to give up their the, the, what he called criminal acts, I guess, and uh, they didn't, and that's when Salahuddin went in and invaded Jerusalem, took Jerusalem over, right. and then it was under Muslim it's control the, for the next 300 the rest, years or whatever it was. We call it the rest of the story. I'm sorry? That's the rest of the story. Yeah, that's the rest of the story, but when you start thinking about this, how, how this particular king, how he had not tolerated anything other than tolerance. There was no tolerance for Intolerance, if that right. makes sense. In other words, yeah. only tolerance was accepted, and nothing less was accepted. And and everything for for however long his reign was was very very peaceful. It was when a group who came out, and this I guess the instrumental point here that I'd like to point out is this comes right back to the seventh toxicity, which is a spiritual toxicity, which we've talked about before. Is that when you have, see, I, I did bring this back around to the medical. Realm, well done, well like done, that. sir. Um, <laughs> When you have the need to perpetuate your belief system on anybody, and it doesn't even have to be religious, it can be any belief system, but you feel compelled to impose your viewpoint on somebody else to the point of going beyond verbal convincing, at that point you now are suffering from an emotional, psychological, and especially in this case, since we're talking about religious, it's actually a spiritual toxicity. Sure. Emotional, psychological is the fifth toxicity. We keep that separate because there is this phenomena where before I used to think that spiritual, emotional, psychological toxicities were one and the same, but they're actually not because there are many people that I've met that have emotional, psychological toxicities, but not spiritual toxicities and vice versa. And so that's the reason I split the fifth. Um, there was a sixth one, which is food, which we've talked about, the homogenization, pasteurization, irradiation, um, genetic modification of foods. So that's the sixth toxicity. So I had to split the fifth one. So when I split the fifth one, the next one that I split, which is spirituality, went to the seventh toxicity. That's why it's not the sixth toxicity. But anyway, the point being that um, when you you accept intolerance, that is the same thing as encouraging intolerance. Encouraging it. This is fascinating discussion. We've got to take a, gr- a quick break here. Uh, Dr. Batar, around the world, globetrotting and bringing uh, the power to heal back to the people wherever he goes. We appreciate him so much, and we'll get more into that. You want to learn more about the toxicities, read the international best-selling book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. It's linked up in the show notes. We'll be right back. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Rock in the health world. 
through the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. All right, Dr. Batar mentioned the seventh toxicity, which is the spiritual toxicity, and then the fifth broken out into the emotional, psychological toxicity, and then the sixth right in, right in between there, the food toxicity. And that's where I wanted to start today, Dr. Batar, but I've, I just so much appreciate your willingness to talk about the things we just did uh, because so few people can do that without yelling and screaming at one another. So terrific, terrific things you're doing there. Uh, this food toxicity is very interesting because a, a new article came out, a new paper coming out talking about fast food and weight gain. Now, most people assume on a superficial level that it's only about the calories. We've always talked about the toxicity of the food, but now they're actually confirming that the, the additives, the pesticides, all the preservatives, the nasty things that are in there besides what they call food are causing great harm to the beneficial gut bacteria specifically that they link to burning of calories. In other words, weight loss, losing weight. So now they're finally acknowledging that quality of food matters. It's not purely about calories. Well, Robert, it would seem to people, at least like you and I, to that information to be intuitive and yet they had to do a study for that and that may be again another one of those moments of death that you talk to <laughs> yes. accentuate but you know here I'll, I'll make a prediction I think that another 10 maybe 15 years they will then get to the point of not just talking about the constituents of the food i.e. the preservatives and the uh, additives but they'll also start talking about what we do to the food because the sixth toxicity is not about what's in the food because right. those additives and preservatives and all those things actually fall underneath either the first or the second toxicity the heavy metals the persistent organic pollutants uh, or the opportunistics which would be you know any of the other things that happen to the food sure but in, in this particular case the sixth toxicity actually is what we do to the food so you could actually consider adding all these things that change the constituents of what we are taking into our bodies. But then there's also things that we do to the food itself, i.e. pasteurization, homogenization, irradiation, right. genetic modification, actually changing the structure of food. And so then this is my prediction that in 15 years, 10 years, they're going to be talking about how all these processes that we take food through are also causing, uh, or at least are a major component of causing chronic disease. So we not only have covered a moment of dub, but we're going to cover a moment of dub 10 to 15 years. In the future. <laughs> you, you're getting way ahead of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. And you know, the thing is, when you talk about what we do to the food, part of that is the recognition, for instance, of uh, the animal proteins, like the burgers at a fast food joint. These animals are eating GMO foods. They're also being given antibiotics just to stay alive or purposefully to fatten them up for slaughter to gain more weight per pound that they wouldn't have gotten without an additional year of growth, for instance. Or prophylactically to prevent them from having disease because they're kept so right. in close proximity to each other that the perpetuation of disease would be a natural consequence of just being so cramped in in close quarters. Right. And so, yeah, and that, so that alters the entire food chain and people that say oh it's not that significant eating meat that has uh, been basically raised for anywhere from a third to a fourth of its life on antibiotics you're getting all those antibiotics when you're taking themselves yourself so you're actually sterilizing your own gut yeah and not a good plan and again what's interesting here is this will probably finally uh, gain some traction in the media why well simply because it's about weight loss and and then when it comes to losing weight, suddenly people are paying attention. Interesting, you know. And he, and w the weight isn't really the the fundamental 
problem. It's what's in the weight, of course. And uh, the reality is, and again, they're acknowledging the gut ecology, the microbiome, and uh, we know the immune system, the production of uh, the endocrine substances, the neurotransmitters, all of these things impacted by just, you know, when you destroy even a small percentage of the gut microbiome. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Robert. And and this uh, is an additive phenomenon. So the more things you add onto this pile of things that are imbalanced, you've got the uh, altered gut flora because of the antibiotics, which then kill off some of the good bacteria. And they may kill off some of the bad bacteria, but the bad bacteria by themselves aren't really pathogenic. It's when you start killing off everything and allow for other opportunistic things, i.e., Candida, or various species of candida to come up, or sometimes it's just that imbalance because there are good bacteria, there are bad bacteria, but the bad bacteria usually are kept in check uh, by the other flora. But when you start throwing off the balance by these antibiotics that basically end up sterilizing the gut, you allow for unfestered growth of other things. So there's nothing there to balance the situation. Think of a forest situation and you've got the mm-hmm. rabbits and the deer and the wolves and the whole cycle of life. Well, you take away the predator, all of a sudden the rabbit population, the deer population grows so fast yeah. that then they eat all the food. And Ooh, uh, yeah, speaking of that, we, we got to take another break here, Dr. Batar. Why are 40% of the people on food stamps obese and does it have anything to do with the story we just covered? Stick around. We've got lots more healing to go. The Robert Scott Bell Show. in the health world through the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. All right, Advanced Medicine continues here with Dr. Rasha Bittar all the way over in the Middle East having a great time and certainly enjoying not only the stories but always chatting wherever you are on the principles of healing that you've revealed, of course, in the nine steps to keep the doctor away. And we've got that going on as the calls are coming in, but I can't take them while we're on the air. Uh, but the... Uh, uh, the issue here of food and the food toxicity, I know you, you kind of break them out into a lot of different toxicities, which is always brilliant because it, it gives people uh, a little easier to understand how each one of these things impact their health. And again, why you did nine steps, not one, not two, but there are nine that you have to consider here. Uh, and this follow-up to our discussion on the damage to the microbiome from fast food. The USDA analyzed data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey for the years between 2007 and 2010 and found that 29% of Americans are overweight and 31% are overbeast, but 40%, 40% that are on food stamps are obese, which is a, high, a significantly higher percentage. Why would that be? Well, I think that as we discussed prior to the break, um, it's because of not only the calorie-rich components um, that these people are consuming perhaps uh, we've always looked at calories but you and I both know it's not the calories it's the type of food that you're eating uh, the there's a couple of th- I, I don't know I don't know what the reason is that they've given Robert and the link that you sent me unfortunately it's not pulling it up it's pulling up uh, on something about the snap program and it's talking more about women nah. uh, US Department of Agriculture but anyway I, I, let me let me take a guess at it and then you tell me if this is what they came up with but I would think that when you're looking at 40% of a population, or in this case, we're talking about a population of people that are on food stamps. Uh, so you're looking at 40% of people that are on food stamps that are, did you say obese or overweight? Yeah, they, they said obese. 
obese. Yeah. So obesity is defined as uh, for a woman, I believe it's over 35% body fat and a male 30% body fat. I believe that's what the clinical definition of obesity is. And I mean, 35% body fat is an, I mean, that's more than a third of your body is just fat. That is tremendous. I mean, you start looking at, you know, the musculoskeletal system and how that should be a significant part of your body weight. You start getting a frame of reference at clinical obesity. These people on fat, they are clinically obese, which means if you take a typical person that you see, typical American that you may think is a little bit overweight or is overweight, that doesn't necessarily mean they're clinically obese. So clinically obesity is Huge. These people are big, right? Yeah. Um, so when you're looking at 40% of this subpopulation being clinically obese, I'm going to I'm gonna take a stab at it. Because they're not having to pay for the food, they can indulge more, and so they're just eating more content. Is mm-hmm. that possibly one of those reasons? Well, there, yeah, there was some indication that uh, there was a, a higher caloric intake. I don't know that it was super significant, but, of course, it, it is within the realm of possibility what you posited there. Uh, but the, the let me let me take a second one. Let sure. me take a second guess. Yeah. Second guess would be that people that are on food stamps, obviously they are on food stamps because they don't have uh, enough income that the government feels that they can sustain themselves. So probably these people are not in a very good emotional psychological state. They're probably depressed. They probably have money concerns, and so they're probably motivated to eat for the same reasons that most people eat, which is when we eat we tend to, um, we're eating because we have an emotional issue. A lot of people eat for emotional reasons. And I would venture that my second guess would be that they are getting what they call um, emotionally fixing foods, foods that have high sugar content, yes, foods that have yeah. high fructose content, high uh, yeah. corn syrup content, that type of thing. That's where you're nailing it exactly right. The study found that the SNAP, these are the food stamp recipients, were le- less likely to consume raw vegetables and whole fruits and more likely to consume uh, these these sodas, uh, you know, these empty calories, if you will, the refined foods that are so cheap because they're subsidized and not the whole fresh vegetables, for instance. So that's a big concern or consideration here is why I've said they don't need more money for food stamps. They need to learn how to grow their own food because, you know, they're not able to afford to buy the stuff if it's, you know, pre- pure, organic, clean, non-GMO. So we want to encourage folks to, you know, go wherever they live in the inner city or whatever, find a way to convert the little land that's there into community plots to start growing this stuff. Yeah, um, it is it is something that is very, very crucial for us as a global society to start thinking more about the sustainability of what we're eating not only the sustainability of how we're living or how we're growing our food, but how we're living. And this is a perfect example. Um, this study goes on to, you know, basically is a perfect example to show what's going to happen in the future if this type of behavior is allowed to continue. As more and more people end up having, you know, we've talked about the political, the economic issues, all these other things that are happening. As more people tend to uh, be stressed, depressed, whatever, for whatever reasons they are, and and the choices of foods aren't the healthy choices, this is a cycle that will feed upon itself, meaning that you're going to be less prone to uh, having those drops in blood sugar late in the afternoon, and then you get that fixed by taking a Coca-Cola or eating a Twinkie or whatever, you know, getting a cookie or whatever. If you're eating more raw vegetables, you're not going to have the spikes in sugars. If you're eating more raw vegetables – you're going to be leaner weight. You're going to probably feel better about yourself if you are lower body fat content, 
Um, you're not going to have the insulinic uh, peaks and troughs that the body has to go through. So it's it's one of those things that we've talked about before too, Robert, is a never-ending self-feeding chain. So when we talk about the inhibitory uh, feedback loops, this would be a positive feedback loop because it's continuing to worsen the situation. The more you yeah. do it, the worse it feeds upon itself, and you're basically perpetuating the next uh, you know, cataclysmic event to take place mm-hmm. from a physiology standpoint. Well, an observation so powerful uh, if we just look around and see the health of the animals that we're consuming, if you are doing that, how do you expect to eat diseased animals that are loaded with drugs, antibiotics, and GMOs and expect to remain healthy? I know that most people don't even consider it in America, so it's not even a thought to ask the question. But once you point this out, then people will go, even a sixth grader or fourth grader will go, let's see, if I eat sick food, will that make me healthy or sicker, right? It's one of those basic common sense kind of things. And now we have another study, interestingly enough, coming out, not not so far from you, but Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, they've got a study that closely links the health of livestock in a given community with the health of the people that are raising them. So they're very connected here to recognize that when the, the animals are sick, the people are sick. But we're so far removed from it, we don't even know what health is in our Western world culture because very few people percentage-wise are that close to the food that's being produced that is then eaten. Yeah, I think this goes back to similar things to Dr. Emoto's work with water where he talked about the intention of what the individual had or even just writing the words uh, anger and frustration and violence on water versus or on a piece of paper, putting that on the bottle of water versus love and gratitude on the water and how, how it actually changes the configuration of the water molecules. And then he froze them and, and took electron microscopy images to show the difference in the, in the water molecules with just those words and those are the only differentiating factors. And so this comes back to the purpose of prayer before you eat mm-hmm. or to bless your food, if you will. It doesn't have to be a religious prayer per se. It's just a, it's just a, a, a gratitude for the, for being able to consume something. So I think that, you know, I'm taking it to the next level, perhaps what you're talking about, but the state of health of the individual dictating the state of health of the animals, um, that you're consuming, uh, it's, it's the same thing as actually blessing your food. And so we are detached as a society in, in the West, I think, because we don't have, we don't even know where the food comes from. We, you don't, mm-hmm. you know, where does, where does beef come from? Well, it comes from, uh, the cold uh, meat section of the grocery food store. Nobody knows the whole cycle of where the animal was born, how it was bred, you know, uh, what it was fed, how it was taken to a feedlot, how it was slaughtered, um, and, you know, all these other aspects that we get completely detached from. So I think it's a really, really valid point. Yeah, I, I do I do like that it's being brought out, even though people, oh, that's in Kenya, that's not in America. It's like, come on, people, wait, wake the hell up. Let me just say that. Uh, you cannot eat food that is diseased but the perception because we're such a visual species in the west that if an ear of corn that's genetically modified looks visually similar to an ear of corn that's organic and non-gmo uh most people in america still think there's no difference even though you can measure the nutritional difference you can measure the glyphosate on one and not on another and then we have to take it to that realm of the other story we acknowledge people eating fast food those toxins are impacting their gut ecology, and then they have to recognize, oh, my gosh, these microbes are not going to kill me. They're here for my good, and killing them indiscriminately by my food is not a good idea. Yes, and this is something that the more that we help people to make them aware of this, I think that's the first step, obviously, is awareness. And many people are already aware of this, but it's 
I'm really glad that this, I don't know if this is where you were thinking was going to go, but I'm really glad it's going this direction because I think the first step is for people to become aware and we're doing that right now. And hopefully as more people become aware, they can start taking the steps that are necessary in order to prevent the sequela from occurring that we're discussing. Yeah, do check out the links in the show notes here at robertscottbell.com. And if you ever miss an episode with Dr. Batar, of course, you can listen to it through the normal routes at our syndicator GCN, GCNlive.com, and of course, naturalnewsradio.com and iTunes and Stitcher and uh, TuneIn and Epic Times and UK Health Radio. But you can all, always go directly to medicalrewind.com. Hundreds of hours of Dr. Batar and I get discussing a lot of cool things and really reinforcing it. And and the reason we bring up these studies to talk about is not that they are, are necessarily new to us in our observations, but they validate for those that are really engaged in, well, is there somebody that's actually published on this? Despite the fact that a lot of the peer-reviewed publications are problematic, there are some things that just overtly show the common sense of what we've been saying and strengthen our point, and we're all about that. Yeah, I think that the reliance on studies to substantiate what should be intuitively obvious to us, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I think that's, again, making excuses. I had, uh, while I was lecturing in Jordan, uh, to this group of... uh, Oh, wait, hold that thought. We're on another break. We're going to be back to wrap up with Dr. Rashid Batar. We're going to hear some more stories from how he was received over in the Middle East with the message of health, freedom, and healing liberty, and all the ways that maybe some of these doctors were not taught. I'm very curious, so stick around. There's more with Dr. Bittar after this. Live around the world, the Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott Bell Show. All right, Dr. Batar, very curious to hear how you were received because you are speaking to groups of allopathic physicians. Maybe not all of them, maybe not some of them. I don't know the percentage-wise have been exposed to the kind of things you know and talk about and have written about that maybe you were met with some level of resistance from the medical community. I mean, that's happened in lectures in the States and in Canada. Uh, Tell me, how were you received? Well, there was, uh, I, I, I didn't talk about health freedom and, and that type of stuff. I was actually specifically giving a lecture on cancer. Okay. Uh, and there were some very senior, uh, hospitalists and, uh, medical professionals there. I mean, they were all allopathic, um, hardcore dogma on chemo and stuff. Oh, absolutely. All chemo, all radiation oriented doctors. Wow. Um, you know, chief of staffs of hospitals. And a lot of governmental officials, very high-ranking governmental officials, as in like higher than the Ministry of Health type. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, the very, very high governmental officials loved it. They they just ate it up. I, I was invited to um, the homes of a couple of them and I had dinner with them, you know, either before or after the the, the conference. But uh, some of them had heard some of my message before. Um, but specifically, the reason I brought that up was. The reason before the break that I brought up the lecture at Jordan was because of when the reference to the reliance upon peer-reviewed literature and published studies. And this is something that those doctors also brought up. It, it's one of those things that when you start relying upon studies, and we've already talked about the problems with some of these studies and how, in one particular case at least, uh, a doctor that had published 10 different studies had fabricated all the data. It was all completely made up. 
uh, when we start looking at these types of things, it's you know you have to be very very cautious of what the agenda was for the people that were doing these studies. But then there's another greater component to this, and I really really accentuated this when I talked to them. We have to remember that science is made up of facts, mm-hmm. and facts are what is the result of a double-blind placebo-controlled crossover multicenter trial. So these published peer-reviewed studies we're talking about, they only collect facts. And facts, yes, it's true that facts make up science, just like bricks make up a house. But a pile of bricks does not make up a house. And similarly, a pile of facts, which these studies uh, come up with, don't make science. So, <laughs> so it's very, very important that people remember this, that the, a house is no more... Uh, or, or, or a pile of bricks is no more than a house as, as a pile of facts is science. Right. Vice versa. A pile of, I should say, a pile of facts is, is about as much science as a pile of bricks is a house. Right. And so well, when we. And also, Dr. Batar, I've been covering this, but uh, we've covered the Journal of the American Medical Association editor speaking out against these things. Uh, recently, The Lancet a former editor for over 10 years, The Lancet, and the British Medical Journal as well, have come out and acknowledged this, that you cannot rely on the peer-reviewed literature anymore, period. It's a sacred cow that is ready to be slaughtered. Those are the words that are coming out of the insiders. Yeah, right. And so so I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because that furthers the argument that I'm making that when people rely, and, and I'm not even seeing people relying on the, on the peer-reviewed literature because I don't really find people as a general relying on this type of literature – what I find is those that are vested in the status quo and are uh, are scared of the new innovations that are coming along, their go-to argument is, well, where was it published or where is the peer-reviewed literature supported? Because yeah. they are still in that archaic mindset, and the only thing that they have to support themselves is that archaic thought process. And it's important for all of us to remember that we cannot create the solution to a problem with the same mindset that created it. Einstein said that. Mm-hmm. That was his definition of insanity. Definition of insanity. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so when you're speaking of things like this, I mean, these are the, the oncologists still rely on mammography to detect breast cancer that it actually causes. I mean, you might have upset a few of them. Oh, I, I mean, a specific uh, issue of mammography came up, and I showed the Chinese study where they did the 19,000 uh, women that did uh, self-breast exams, and they found at the end that the mortality and morbidity with self-breast exams compared to mammography was exactly the same, and I believe that was actually skewed because it would have been a lot less with self-exams because you're not compressing the breast, tra- traumatizing the breast, irradiating the breast repetitively year after year. So to say that you know the the onset of catching breast cancer was the same, um, perhaps I would believe that. But to say that the mortality yeah. rate was the same, I would I would have a hard time believing that. The well, point listen, is though, Doctor Batar, we got to get more stories from you over the week because I know you're going to be there, and I appreciate you staying up late so we could do this. Absolutely, Robert. Absolutely. All right, so stand by. We're going to take a break. I'll be back tomorrow. Dr. Batar, I'll be back next week. Stay safe, and remember, the power to heal is yours. The Robert Scott Bell Show.